who come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth, burst into songs, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on the afflicted ones. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever, bef your walls are ever before me. This is God's word. You may be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 49. Inside of the announcement sheet, you're going to find a, an outline that you can use as we go through this message this morning out of Isaiah 49 that uh, deals with a metaphor that describes how God relates to us. And before we, we press our mind into, into this, this great text, let's pray that God bless us. Father, we want our minds prepared to, to study and our hearts to be prepared to, to learn and to make the, the proper applications in our life knowing that your word is true, that it's inspired, that it is solid, that it is eternal, Father. And these words that Robert has read to us, these were first birthed in, in your heart in all of eternity and have made their way to us through your Spirit. And we want to treat these words as they should be treated, Father, with, with the value, the preciousness of them. And, and we want these words, Father, that are alive and powerful to change us, to change the way that we think and to change the way that we react and respond to everything around us and to do it in such a way, Father, that people see our lives and they get a hint of what the gospel is all about. And so give us these eyes that see, these ears that hear, Father, and, and help us to be great stewards of this Word and help it, Father, in our hearts and minds to make us better disciples. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Isaiah is a, is a great book. It's a great book. And the latter chapters of Isaiah have this, there is this mysterious figure known as the special servant of God who shows up and according to these latter chapters in Isaiah, he is the one that's going to bring salvation into all of the world. And he stays mysterious for several centuries until you get to the New Testament time. And the writers of the New Testament constantly and consistently identified this special servant in Isaiah as Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who is going to bring the salvation. And the salvation that he is going to bring is described in the first 13 verses of Isaiah chapter 49, and it's panoramic. This, this description of what it is that God is going to do through this special servant just is it, sweeping throughout the entire world. If you go to verse 5, he is going, God is going to, through this special servant, he is going to bring Jacob, that is Israel, back from exile, and they're going to return to the land. And then you go to verse 6, and it's not just Israel. It's not just the people of the land that are going to be blessed, but in verse 6, Israel is going to be a blessing, a light to the Gentiles, in order, as verse 6 says, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then you drop down to verse 12, and it's not just the people from the east 
that are going to be blessed this way, but the people from the north and the west and the south, which is the reference there to Aswan, they are all going to be blessed. It's going to be all peoples. And then in verse 13, the mountains of the land rejoice because this great salvation has become ultimate. It's become a reality to all people. It's panoramic, it's sweeping, it's a grand picture of all of these things that God is going to do that we this day rejoice in. But what makes all of this fascinating, especially verses 14 and 16, is there is a, a skeptical response that is given to this, this panoramic vision of, of the ultimate salvation that's coming to the, to the earth through this special servant. What you have in these verses is a skeptical response to the great things that God says that He is going to accomplish. Look at verse 14. It begins with these two words, but Zion. Zion is representative of, of, of the Temple Mount and of Jerusalem and of all of Israel. And it is, it's about the temple that has been built and is later destroyed. If you drop all the way down to verse 19, which is a couple of verses past the text, that, uh, that Robert read for us, what you're going to see is that Israel has been made a desolation, that it's been laid waste. Israel is a wasteland. And that is why the people of Israel, when they hear those first 13 verses, where God is going to bless all of the people, He's going to bless not just Israel, but it's going to be a salvation that, that is sweeping throughout the entire world, that's why they respond with sort of this, this skeptical response. God is going to be loving the world, but they respond... I don't feel very loved. These are the promises of loving action, but Israel says she doesn't feel like she's loved by God. Now, you know as well as I do that that's a very common response from human beings. To have all of this knowledge of what it is that God is doing in the world, but for some reason or another, we don't feel it in our hearts and we don't feel very close to God. Or at least God doesn't feel very close to us. And what we want to do this morning is we want to we delve into that question that's in verse 14 and then look at the way that God responds to it in two different answers in verses 15 and 16. The first thing is that painful question. Verse 14, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Again, when you read the promises of, chapters, uh, of chapter 49, verses 1 through 13, your heart begins to soaring out in the, the loftiness of, of the heavens at the prospects of the future. You think, goodness gracious, God is, going, God is so powerful that from His heaven He's going to be able to transform not just Israel but the entire world. And it's going to be so glorious that even nature, the mountains itself, are going to bow down and rejoice at this ultimate salvation that's coming to everything. But the people want to know about now. See, I'm surrounded by needs now. I've got tragedies in my life now. I've got needs right now. And the temple and the presence in the lands are our assurance that you loved us. But look at the temple now. Now, one of the things, notice this, it's subtle, but I think it's also profound in the text. Notice that the people are not saying something that's bluntly atheistic. They're not saying, you know, we don't believe in God. They do believe. They have Torah. They have the the prophets. They have God's Word. They have that and they believe it, but it doesn't affect them. God's Word is not changing them. God's Word is not shaping them. Now, one of the things that you and I both know is that it's very possible for a human heart to live in the reality of a truth that our mind accepts and not be shaped or formed by it or it changed the way that we feel about anything at all. 
writer by the name of Richard Lovelace says that we know in our minds that we are the children of God, but our every experience is evidence to the contrary, evidence against that, and that's why we still love from other places. Now what he's saying there is that we can know in our mind and we can have all of the Scriptures, the pertinent, right Scriptures memorized and even know them in a couple of different versions, but, if, but if, we, if we don't allow that information to transform our hearts, then every experience that we have in the world is going to tell us just the opposite, that God doesn't love you. And when we don't feel loved by God, what we're going to do is we're going to steal that love from other places, meaning idols. That's why we have to deal with this. We know intellectually that God loves us, but there's stuff on the inside of us that in the, the dark of the night when we're by ourselves and we're able to contemplate and be very, very honest about what's going on inside of us or what we know about ourselves, we wonder how in the world could God ever love us? I know I've read Romans. I know what Romans 8 is saying. I've read the New Testament. I know about the resurrection and the crucifixion and the burial, all of that of Jesus. But I know what I'm like on the inside and I know the thoughts that I have and how could God possibly love someone like me. God could never love someone who's done the things or thought the things that I've done in this life. And it's not just the evidence on the inside of us that's sometimes contrarian to, the, to, to what Scripture says about God loving us. There's evidence on the outside as well. Well, like what? Well, how about unanswered prayer? Have you ever felt forsaken or forgotten because God, you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and, you prayed and God somehow in His infinite wisdom forgot to answer your prayer, or at least in a way that you perceive it? Or how about terrible disappointments? Terrible disappointments. There's, there's an illness, or there's a loss, or there's, there's a, a relationship that goes awry, and there are terrible disappointments. Therefore, the love of God is not a reality of my heart, even though it is a reality of truth in my head. It doesn't change the way that I respond to any of this negative stuff. And if we do not surmount that issue to the point that our lives are changed by this doctrine, that God does love us, and that He loves us infinitely and perfectly and dearly, we are going to steal that love that we so desperately need from other places like jobs. If I don't feel loved by God, then I'm going to pour myself into the job and I'm going to win every achievement and merit award and go right up that corporate level and, and be able at least to feel appreciated by my, my co-workers. Or I'm going to steal that love from relationships and our relationships go awry because they're, 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 they're not based in God. That's why this has to be addressed. The minute that something goes wrong... These feelings of being forsaken and these feelings of being forgotten come crashing in. And we've all been there. We, we know what Israel is saying in the Old Testament to God at this point. That's why we have to deal with it. So how does God deal with that kind of spiritual despondency? God's answer is the second thing. It comes in verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Wow, there are just some wonderful truths about how God deals with the despondent person in that verse. Now the first thing, notice what God does not do. 
I mean, God is speaking to the prophet about all of the great things that he's going to be doing in the world, and he's, 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 just, he's just waxing eloquent about how this, this panoramic vision of God's salvation is going to be the, the ultimate truth that's going to draw all men to God. And even nature to, it, itself, is, it's going to be so beautiful that nature will recognize it and will worship God and, and celebrate that, that, that salvation coming to all places. And then Israel says, but you know what? I don't feel very loved right now. Well, God doesn't jump up and roll up his sleeves and say, you know what you need to do? You need Israel. You need to suck it up. In fact, notice that God allows himself to be interrupted from the flow of verse 13 with the issue of not being loved, of, of, of Israel saying, I feel forsaken. I feel forgotten. Which I think tells you a lot about God. You know, when, when I was at a ACU uh, about 100 years ago, there were two kinds of professors in college. There were the ones that you could interrupt, and there were the ones that you could never interrupt. And I had a church history class with the great, late Lemoyne Lewis, Harvard-trained uh, uh, church historian in my sophomore year, sitting in a class of about 150 kids that are all listening to, to Dr. Lewis talk about church history. And Lewis was one of those professors that you could not interrupt. And it wasn't because he didn't care about you. It was because when he got into full throat, into full throttle, there, I mean, you, to stop him was, was like a, a, a NASCAR hitting, hitting the side wall. I mean, I, springs would come out of him in these kinds of things. And, and there, was a so, there was a freshman student my sophomore year that was taking the same class. And he was a little over his head with the church history and all of the details and the, and the rapidity with which that information was being delivered. And I remember one time he raised his hand. And we all looked over and we started sniggering because there's no way Dr. Lewis even notices him, sees him. And then he started waving his hand. And a couple of minutes later, no joke, he stands up on his chair and starts doing this, Dr. Lewis, Dr. Lewis. And Dr. Lewis came to a complete halt and it was like he had been, you know, it was like he hit a wall. That's not the way God is here. Look at what God does. God stops and takes the outburst seriously. And then second, notice what he does to help Israel. He gives them, he gives them something special. He gives them a metaphor. Now why, why does he do that? Why does, anybody, why does anybody use a metaphor when they can, they can just use plain language? It's because he gives them that metaphor because he wants them to stop and he wants them to visualize and to think deeply and to consider a couple of things. Metaphors are not just for hard thinking. They're also a gateway to the emotions that come into our thought life. For example, you know, every day, a couple of times a day, I just make it a habit because it's true to say, Ellen, I just love you. I'll text it to her. She'll text it back. Sometimes she's the first one to text it. I'll text it back. It sounds pretty good. Ellen, I love you. Or I can say, Ellen, my love for you is like the sea. Which means, when she thinks about it, that when it comes to my love, it's immense for her. Like the ocean, it's not a little thing. And that my love is relentless and powerful like waves crashing into the shore. That it's always there. You, you always see it. Nothing can stop my love. It's always there. Sounds pretty good at that point. And sounds a little bit more uh, profound or evocative than just saying, you know what, I have the emotion of love for you. That's why we have metaphors. 
So out of all of the metaphors, the hundreds, the thousands of metaphors that God could give out of the entire universe, which one does He choose to give? He gives this one. The God of the universe is like a nursing mother. Now, in that statement is a, a challenging theology designed to get to our emotional life. And I guarantee you, church, if you spend weeks and weeks thinking about this and making notes and grappling with it and praying about it constantly and, and, and allowing it to change the way that you feel about God, it will change your heart. Now, this metaphor is a vivid picture of God with His people and how He has not forgotten them or forsaken them. Can a mother forget a baby at her breast? She may forget, but I will never forget, God says. Now let me give you three reasons why a mother can never forget. The first is a mother, a mother cannot forget physically the child that she is nursing. Now, you, you know you don't. It, it, now I don't know any of this from personal experience, but I remember sitting. You know, when when our children were babies, I can remember sitting on the couch with Ellen, and just out of the blue, this is you know there was no alarm that went off, but Ellen just knew that it was time for her to feed one of our, Jessica or Jordan, because she began to feel uncomfortable. The prolactin kicked in. Prolactin, impressed, right? The prolactin kicks in, and all of a sudden, here comes the milk. And if nothing happens in terms of nursing, then you feel tremendous discomfort. There is this, this physical movement in the body that does not allow the mom ever to forget that baby. There, and not only is it physical, but it's also she can never forget emotionally. I mean, there's hardly anything in the world more bonding than what happens between a mom and her baby when she's nursing that baby. It, it's, it's a delightful thing, and it bonds emotionally, that mother and that child together. But then a mother doesn't just forget emotionally or physically. She doesn't forget volitionally, which means she does this out of her own free will. I mean, think about marriage. You get, you get up in front of the preacher. You get up in front of a bunch of witnesses. You make some vows about how you're there and you will honor those vows regardless of what happens in that marriage. But in the back of your mind, you know that in any good marriage, there are going to be some give and some take. Now, is there give and take in a mother-baby relationship like there is in marriage? Well, sort of. I mean, the mother is all give and the baby is all take. And for most people, this is their first experience with unconditional love. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, your life revolves around that child and that child's needs. Now this metaphor just brims with the indestructible nature of mother's love for her infant. And God says, compare that to me. Even though she may forget, I will not. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, as great as a mother's life might be for you, it doesn't compare to the love of God. On the rare occasion that you encounter, you know, there are mothers that are bad and they might abandon you. Or even in the case of a great mother, her love is not indestructible because she is not indestructible. And what God is trying to draw out in that metaphor is to say that, that as great as a mother's love might be in that kind of a circumstance, mine is greater yet for you. Now that's just a dim light compared to God's love and delight in you. 
You see her physical love. You see her emotional love. You see her volitional love. You think of all of that. The mother is nursing. And what is it that God is trying to say in that metaphor? I mean, remember, Israel's thinking that it's forgotten, it's out of mind, it's forsaken, it's out of heart of God. What God is saying is that all of those things, the emotion, the volition, the, the, the physicality of the nurse, all of that at the very core of a mother, like me, my very core, the, at the very center of who I am, I am drawn to you. I mean, think about that. If, if you lived with this kind of truth every day, what kind of person would you be? And the answer is probably a different person that's sitting in the pew right now. There would be a fountain of joy at the core of your life that no tragedy, no, no trouble could ever cork or ever, ever stifle. If you lived with the thought every day that at the core of God's being is that kind of love that is drawn to you, you would, li- you would be a changed person for life. And that's not even the best part of God's answer yet, which leads to a third thing, which is the cure for the pain that Israel is feeling and and saying that I've been forgotten and I've been forsaken. You know, when you get right down to it, talk is cheap, right? Talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words, right? That's why John will say at the end of the, the, the New Testament, dear friends, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and what? And in truth. That's make sure that we're showing the love. Not just saying, brother, you know, be warmed and filled, which is, you know, that which is in James. But John is addressing the same thing. Let's not just talk a good fight. Let's get in there and do it. Now, when you're trying to figure out if somebody loves you, those words are important. I mean, remember how awkward it is kind of at the very beginning when you want to be the first one to say I love you because that's the way you really feel and you want to get this show going. But at the same time, it's kind of a scary thing because what if that person doesn't love you right back? I mean, you're left out there hanging, you know, dangling with an I love you out there, and it's kind of dangerous. And so to to kind of shore up the nerves a little bit to say, you know what, I really love you. I love everything about you. What you really want is some action. You want some, some activity, some movement, some gestures. You want some action that says that. A person can say they love you, but if they don't show it, then you don't know if they really love you or not. Now think back to verse 14, the words, forgotten and forsaken. Forgotten means that you're not in their thoughts. Forsaken means that you're not in their actions. You're not in their heart. Now go back to the metaphor. You parents know that having a baby can be absolutely draining, and it only gets worse when they get old enough to talk. You've been orienting your entire life around that child and there are hundreds of sacrifices that you make every day for your child and they never see it, they never understand it, they never perceive it, even though it's out there. It's, it's sort of like the fish can't see the water because the fish only knows water. That's all it only knows. The child only knows that that's what our adults are for, right? To meet my needs. That's why God made adults. And then one day you don't give your child what it wants and he screams, you don't love me. And this is what you want to say, you little punk. (laughs) You have not a clue of all of the sacrifices that I have made for you. Now go to your room, you little twerp. And then it dawns on you that, in a sense, that is exactly what we do to God. 
We say you don't love me because you're not giving me what I want now. I don't have the feelings of, of love right now from you. And God says, and it's probably in the Hebrew someplace, you little punk. You don't even notice the magnitude of all of the ways that I take care of you and the most crucial sacrifice that I've made for you is infinitely more important than the thing that you want from me right now. So what is it? He says in verse 16, I've engraved you on the palms of my hand. I've engraved you on the palms of my hand. In the ancient world, it was typical that a servant might have his master's name tattooed on him to show that he was obedient to that person, he, showing that he was in submission to that individual over there. That person was his owner. That's what was on the slave, a mark of his owner. And it was never the other way around. The, the, if it was the other way around, that would mean that the master was devoted to the servant, which, again, was, that could never be in the ancient world. But this metaphor gets even uglier because it's not really a tattoo, but something else that's being talked about here. In the Hebrew, the word is hakach, which means to permanently chisel. It, it's, that word is used when the action is with a hammer and with a spike. And Israel is saying, you've forgotten me and you've forsaken me. And God is saying, nope. I have you chiseled on my hands. I've engraved you on the palms of my hand. It's a terrible metaphor, but it's the truth. And centuries later, there is this fellow by the name of Thomas who's filled with all kinds of doubts. And he's wondering what is going to happen to him. He thought that there was a future with this guy by the name of Jesus, his itinerant rabbi, but now he's crucified and he's dead and he's been buried and it's been days since we've seen him. And then Jesus appears to him. And he says, Thomas, I know you have doubts. You might be fe feeling like God has forgotten you or forsaken you a little bit. But he holds out his hands and says, but don't have any more doubts about my love for you. Put your finger in these places, that are in, these holes that are engraved in my palms. That's my devotion to you. That's my devotion to you. Oh, church, we get so fearful that we're forsaken, that God has forgotten us. We, we think that God has, that we're not in His heart anymore, that He's forsaken us. But Jesus took all of that, all of that forsakenness so that we would never be forsaken. What is it that He cries on the cross for us? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took all of the forsakenness in heaven and hell so that we would not have to. God loves you unconditionally and like all good mothers, sacrifices in order for you to flourish. And when you begin to live with that kind of truth every day in such a way that it's just a part of your going in and, and, and coming out in the way that you think, the way that you speak, the way the, the filter 
That really colors everything that you see. There's not an event that can take place in this world that it will hurt and it will make you cry and you will have anguish and agony and you will suffer, but you will never doubt for a minute the truth of Romans 8, that there's nothing that separates you. It's a sword or demons or whatever it might be separates you from the love of God. And when you have that kind of truth forming your heart and mind and the way that you respond and the way that you act, then you go out into the world. It's a different kind of an individual. A wholesomeness about you that people see because we know about the engraved hands. We know about the forsakenness. We know that we're not forgotten. We know that regardless of what happens in this life, we are never, ever, ever separated from God. That His power is at work in our life, turning whatever is adverse and troublesome and painful and excruciating into something that is glorious, whatever it might be. And when people see that kind of transformation in us and they see that kind of life, then they begin to understand something of the power of the gospel. So I ask, when people look at you, do they see a, a, a believer who knows all of the right truths but acts as if they're forsaken and forgotten? Not shaped by those truths in the least. Or do they see a person that has a poise and a presence and a dignity and a, and, a, and a profound depth of spirituality when it comes to the good times and the bad times, that there's a wisdom about their life, that there is a, a, a strength and a courage and a bravery in their life, regardless of what they may be facing, that, that, overshadows, that overshadows the negativity with the beauty of God's salvation that shines like a light in this community so that God's salvation might be seen even to the ends of the earth. That's the panoramic view that God squeezes in our heart of His salvation that transforms us and people's understanding of Him everywhere. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And you know what we do at this time. We give you an opportunity to respond. Is this the day that you give yourself to that kind of God, the one that loves you, that loves you enough to, to engrave you on the palms of His hand, to, to never leave you, to love you unconditionally, to make the vow that we read not only in the Old Testament but in the New Testament, never to leave you, but to always, always, always be there. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If, if there are ways that we can minister to you this morning, come down and talk to our shepherds. Let's stand and sing together. Talk the gentle voice of Jesus.